At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune into the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for another week of Women to Watch. It's great to be back. Um, after a quick trip to Nashville for our very first live show there. Um, as many of you know, if you follow us on social media, we're going to be airing um, in our next market. So it was a wonderful trip and very exciting. Um, with me uh, this evening in just a moment is my guest. Her name is Asha Varghese. And Asha is the president of the Caterpillar Foundation, which um, is an arm of uh, Caterpillar Inc., and works to improve communities in the areas of education, environment, and the workforce. And she's going to be sharing her story with us in just a moment. Uh, Be sure to stay with us as we go into our breaks to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors um, who will speak with you about your health, finance, technology, and business. Um, All of these women are leaders within their own industries and organizations, and we're honored to have them as on-air contributors. Uh, So now I'm very honored to welcome to the show Asha, Asha Varghese, again, president of the Caterpillar Foundation. Asha, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Sue. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. It's it's great to have you. And and I believe you're in California. Am I correct? No, actually in Chicago. Chicago, Chicago. Chicago, yeah. No, he's Chicago. Okay. I, I know what the weather is there. My brother lives there, and um, we speak on a regular basis. I'm always happy to be in Philadelphia. <laughs> a little bit warmer. <laughs> Don't blame you. Don't blame you. <laughs> um, so, Liz, Asha, you and I had a really wonderful conversation a couple of months ago, and, and I learned a little bit more about your story. And one of the things that's most impressive to me is the fact that you came from another country and, of course, had to come here and really adjust to um, a a new way of life. And I'm always uh, amazed by that. You moved to America at the age of 12 from India um, to, as you describe, a one light town with a diversity count of one (laughs) percent, your your very own family. (laughs) So my first question, tell me how you're 
father and and your family ended up there. Uh, and I understand he came as a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my parents, um, they're both physicians. They um, came to the United States in the early seventies to um, for higher education to do their fellowship, their residency, and um, in fact, at that time, um, so I'm the youngest of four girls, and so three of my sisters were with them at that time. And but my father actually decided decided to move back to India. Um, so this was before I was born um, because he wanted his kids to grow up in a culture that they're familiar with. I think they found it um, difficult to be able to raise them without having a strong support system, which is where I came uh, into picture. And um, it, it, a lot of times in, in communities in India, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll find that, you know, having four girls is, is, a, is a burden um, rather than a blessing. Um, but my parents with their education and their background really kind of instilled in us um, to be able to grow up in a surrounding where um, you know we have we have the right education, um, so I think somewhere somewhere along the line, uh, my father um, got a call from one of his attending uh, back in Kentucky, which is where uh, which is where he had done his fellowship to see if he would be interested in coming back, um, and this happened to be the small town of Hyden, Kentucky. It's a coal mining industry. Um, or was uh, was an industry, and and there was a hospital that was shutting down, so um, he decided to take a leap of faith, and um, he came back himself for a first few years, and left my mom and um, his girls back home to just to see how the um, environment will be, and really kind of um, ingrain himself in in that system. So um, that was sort of the beginning of our move back to the United States, and then slowly we all started um, migrating. And for me, as a 12-year-old, I definitely had a lot of um, a lot of idea and concept of what America um, looks like, just from the videos that I had seen, from what my sisters had talked about. Um, but I had very little um, idea of the little town that I would be moving to, which um, it, it, it's truly beautiful. If anyone ever comes. Uh, comes to Kentucky, I would highly recommend you coming to the Appalachian Mountains to hide in. But um, yet it was, it was a bit of a shock for me because my version of America was very different from where I landed. Wow. Um, but but growing up, um, you know, I, th- I think it's the first time you um, you understand the difference of, you know, the concept that you are different. And then you determine, you know, how do you really fit into a new culture, but yet preserve um, the culture that you've been brought up in. So you're sort of living in these two, um, two interesting systems and um, sort of growing up, learning the ways of two different cultures and blending it in and, and making it your own to, cer- to a certain extent. Mm. Uh, that's so interesting listening to you describe, you know, your vision of of America and then coming to that little town. Um in your in your bio you mentioned um limitations, the 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 difference uh between the limitations you faced in India versus Kentucky. I wonder if you can describe those. Absolutely. So I think um you know Right now, much of our success is determined by the things you can't control, where you're born, whether you're born male or female. And I think in the in the decade that I was born in India, there are definitely a lot of gender norms of um, 
growing up as a female and the burden that you might be to your parents. And I think it has significantly changed with all of the advances and the economic growth that we're seeing uh, across the globe. But I think um, there were definitely certain challenges in um, growing up in that environment. But having parents that really instilled in us the value of education and and really the key to success is um, having that strong foundation was truly a blessing for me. And, um, and and that's probably one of the reasons kind of looking back at my, my life and where I am today in, in this particular role has definitely given me sort of that passion and perspective to say, you know, not everyone's blessed to have that kind of a support system. So how do you really provide that to um, to the people that may not be as fortunate. Um, but so I would say growing up in India, you have very different types of challenges that comes with um, comes with sort of the culture and the tradition and being female. But yet coming to America, to rural America, I think the challenges were more around, um, you know, having access to quality education, quality health care, again, definitely leaps and bounds from where I came from. But at the same time, you really start to see sort of the similarities to some extent in these two dichotomies, but also um, knowing that, you know, there there are there are places even in our own country where things can be challenging. And how do you really then help people out of that? Um, out of that environment mm. um, is probably one of the reasons where I am what I'm doing today. Right. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Asha Varghese, and she's the president of the Caterpillar Foundation. Um, and yes, it wasn't as if you left India and came into New York City, right? So that's, <laughs> right. that's a big difference. Um, Listen, we're going to go into our first break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, when you knew that medicine was not for you, coming from a family of physicians. Please stay with us as we go into our break for our Health Watch with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Now, the Women to Watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. We're very careful in prescribing antibiotics because one of the important side effects is antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Your intestine has good bacteria that protect you from infection. An antibiotic may help your sinus or bladder infection, but can kill the good gut bacteria and let a diarrhea-producing bug take over. Clostridioides difficile, formerly called Clostridium difficile. Either way, we say C. diff for short. C. diff can release toxins that damage the lining of the colon, causing diarrhea, belly pain, fever, and more. Mild cases, three or more loose watery bowel movements per day, improve with antibiotic pills. More severe, fever, bloody stools up to 10 times a day, may need the hospital with oral and IV antibiotics. 
In rare, life-threatening cases, surgery is done to remove the entire colon. Otherwise, the bowel can rupture, cause a blood infection with organ failure, and even death. Risk factors? Recent antibiotic? Recent hospital stay from contaminated surfaces like doorknobs, bedside tables, bathrooms, or spread between patients by the hands of healthcare workers. Up to 50% of nursing home patients carry C. diff in their stools. Many do not have symptoms, but they can shed the bug. A weak immune system from an illness or chemotherapy, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, or taking a medicine that lowers the acid level in your stomach. Prevention, wash your hands after using the bathroom and before eating. Use water and plain soap. Rub at least 20 seconds, then dry with a paper towel. Alcohol hand rubs may give less protection. Artificial fingernails are very hard to clean, so healthcare workers should not wear them. Wear gloves and wash your hands when you visit someone in the hospital with diarrhea. And please, get your blue lights ready for the front of your home or business for March, Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Thanks, divas. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. I'm so honored to have with me this evening Asha Varghese, the president of the Caterpillar Foundation, uh, which is a philanthropic arm of uh, Caterpillar Incorporated. And um, I, I know, Asha, that you're from a family of physicians and you've talked about being proud to be an engineer. And I wanted to first ask you, did you know early on that medicine was not for you or did you feel a little bit of pressure to go in that same direction? Yeah, so I, you're right that I, I do come from a family of physicians, but um, I think I think what gave me sort of the... Um, the clear sign that medicine probably is not for me is I, I used to actually go sit in the ER when my uh, when my parents were working and they couldn't find a babysitter. Um, so, <laughs> and I used to faint at the sight of uh, blood or when I see people in a lot of pain, it actually used to give me pain too. So oh. I kind of realized that medicine is probably not where um, I want to end up, but I was always fascinated by the way systems work, um, whether I'm sitting in an ER and just seeing how people move and how uh, technology works and how it helps them. And, and, and obviously, you know, you're looking in the 90s, you know, you're not as technologically advanced in a, as, as we see some of our healthcare systems today. So um, to me, that was more of the of the problem solving and and sort of that approach is what really led me to um, going to the engineering route, which I will say was probably a disappointment for my father um, when I decided to go into um, engineering versus medicine. But I think they were equally proud when I um, came out and and I I chose a a career in in corporate America, but there was... uh, there was a healthcare angle to it, and which is where I think I could relate more to the rest of my family. Right. And I'm sure there are a lot of um, a- Asian Indian kids that that probably come with the same uh, perspective of you know doing something that might be entirely different from what their family does, and not being able to completely relate back to what do you actually do on a daily basis. But, um, <laughs> Not that, you know, yes, computer engineering and computer science, which is what your degree is in, is, I would say, you know, equally challenging in in the study. So, um, you know, it's a little bit surprising to hear you say that. It is, but I I think think that's just how they're wired. I think if you're in the field of medicine, that's 
basically all you, that's what you know and that's what you surround yourself with. But um, I've been, I've definitely enjoyed my time uh, in global health and, and from an engineer's perspective and working on some of the business challenges uh, from that side mm. um, and, 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 and going that route. But yes, um, I think I'm an engineer through and through um, as well as, a, um, you know, I kind of had, did a stint in uh, Six Sigma and, and there's a black belt there. So I know my thinking is very systemic and process oriented, um, even in my daily life. You know, I laughed when I read about you gave an example of how systematic you are when you load a dishwasher and everything is placed in <laughs> categories. And I chuckled because I thought I do the same thing. Maybe I could have been an engineer. <laughs> well, I know, there you go. Right. Does that, you know, that kind of systematic thought process, does that carry over into your personal life as well? Is it something that perhaps you wish you'd be a little uh, less you know more. Yeah. You know that. Go ahead. It, it's it's so true that the more and more more um, experienced you get in your professional life, it's amazing to see how much that really bleeds over into your personal life and the way you make decisions. Your you know it, it, it things as simple as loading the dishwasher, but for me. Um, it, it became quite apparent that, you know, as you think about processes and removing waste and making things more efficient, mm. um, it almost becomes part of how you function in, in life. And, and I've had moments, and especially from a cultural standpoint, because, you know, I've, when I started in corporate America, I'd say I was more of an introverted um, person that, you know, soft-spoken. I thought a few times before I asked questions. Um, things that you would probably stereotypically say, and perhaps some that may have come culturally for me, and that's just, you know, how I grew up in that environment. But I, um, I, I got this feedback very early on to say, you know, you're never going to become a leader. Chances of you becoming a leader is very uh, close to nil, given your cultural background and um, how you're performing. And I think that was sort of a turning point for me to say, okay, I'm not going to let that, you know, this is not something I was born with. It's something that I can absolutely change. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to let that limitation sort of um, dictate what what my trajectory would look like. So I, I, I would definitely say that, you know, I, I changed myself to be able to, um, you know, gain some of those skills. And and it was an evolution for me. And I can kind of see that looking back in my career. So you kind of think about, you know, how much does your professional life really bleed into your personal life? I, I can definitely see myself having shifted from that introverted, quiet person to, um, you know, to where I am today. And, you know, I, I still probably strike a balance where I do need my downtime. But at the same time, I think I think a lot of women I feel like I've come across that have talked about this shift that they go through as part of their professional life. Mm. I always love hearing the description or the story of a young woman who um, finds her voice. You know, although <laughs> I would say I, I do think that there can be leaders that are kind of leading from a, a quieter place, perhaps, you know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. that they're excellent leaders because they're good listeners. Um, so it's not as if you have to change really so much about who you are, but just perhaps believing more in your in opinions your... and what you write and what you want to do. 
and speaking up about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a journey of learning about yourself. Um, to me, it was very, it, it was very eye-opening. Um, I, I went through a, a, a leadership program recently. It's called the Presidential Leadership Scholar Program that um, really uh, hones in on your core value. And um, really, you know, you dig deeper to kind of know what is it that drives you. Um, so eye-opening for me to really pull my story together to say what's the core value that I've always led uh, a lot of my decisions in life. And um, to, to your point, Sue, it's really about learning your own limitations, understanding your priorities, and you're not, you know, changing who you are fundamentally, but you're, um, you're more cognizant of who you are as a person and how to present yourself to the world. Mm, I love that. When we come back, I'm going to ask you what that core value is. Stay with us Mm -hmm. to hear from Finance Watch from Fortis Wealth. We'll be right back. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Watch Finance Watch. Hi, this is Maggie. And this is Terry. And we're from Fortis Wealth. Last week, we talked about the types of stocks and why it is usually a good practice to own different types. The same can be said about bonds. First, let's go over what is a bond, Terry? Bonds are issued by governments or companies as a way to borrow money, similar to taking out a loan. Each bond has a maturity date, which is when the issuing company must pay back the principal to the investor. Bond prices are quoted in terms of their denomination, usually $1,000, and stated interest rate or coupon. An investor buys a bond, earns interest during the holding period, and eventually gets their principal back at maturity. You can hold an individual bond to its maturity date, However, many bonds are traded before then, particularly when they are owned by mutual funds and ETFs. Sounds kind of boring. Well, don't be fooled. There are more types of bonds and bond issuers than there are of stocks. There is money to be made in bonds, but making that happen can be very complicated. Interest rates play the most important role in the overall investment return, not only the stated interest on the individual bond, but also changes in rates and expectations of future rates. Generally, if interest rates decrease, an older bond with a higher coupon may be sold for a higher price and vice versa. So who issues bonds? Treasury bills, notes, and longer-term bonds are offered by the U.S. government and are generally believed to offer the lowest risk of default. Cities and other municipalities offer bonds, which are popular because the interest is usually not taxed to the investor. Corporate bonds owned by companies like Verizon or Comcast are rated relative safely based on the financial strength and stability of the issuing company. You may hear the term high yield or junk bonds. These are issued by companies with lower financial ratings and they generally pay higher interest rates. They're also considered to be riskier. Governments of other developed and emerging countries also issue bonds. So bonds can help to reduce the overall volatility compared to an overall stock portfolio. But keep in mind that not all bonds or stocks perform the same way all the time. Choose carefully and monitor your portfolio regularly. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. Asha, just before the break, uh, you 
described, uh, first of all, you mentioned your um, participation in the Presidential Leadership Scholar Program, and I I had that as a question. I wanted to know how you uh, came to participate in that. But you mentioned um, the fact that really all of us can be learning and growing and finding our voice, but at the same time staying very close to our core value. And I wonder if there is one that leads you, or perhaps there's several. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, went through this exercise of truly figuring out what my core value is, and it was it was a little bit of a surprise for me. Um, and if anybody wants to do this, I would highly recommend um, kind of walking through this exercise and really honing in on understanding what is it that really drives you as a individual, as a leader, um, um, and as, as, a, as a as a person. Um, you know, I came into the exercise thinking, you know, it's about integrity, it's about uh, authenticity, um, those are honesty, those are some of the, you know, values that really drive who we are as as people. And, um, but I forced myself to kind of reflect on on my upbringing, on, on, on how I grew up, the choices that I made, and what is it that really stayed pretty consistent across all of those key decision-making points um, in my life. And surprisingly for me, what ca- what really bubbled up and what connected my whole story was uh, stability. Um, whether it was, you know, as a child growing up in India and having a very stable background in a very challenging environment um, really helped me to um, you know, build my roots and my foundation um, and having stability uh, in my faith. Um, and in, in a lot of um, scenarios where, you know, you come to, come, at a fork, come to a fork and have to make decisions, whether that's personally or professionally, I think I've always leaned towards, um, you know, what's the more, um, what's the solution that's going to give us a stable environment in which we can work. So um, I kind of translated that a little bit into my work as well. And in looking at, you know, global development um, in in the space that I'm in today. And I think that's truly what drives a lot of the solutions that I look for is, you know, are we eventually creating a stable environment in in whatever country, whatever community we may be in. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was an eye-opening uh, reflection experience for me, but that's what I would say. If I'm forced to really just pick one, it is to be able to create a stable environment for everyone around me. Mm. That That is interesting, and I would imagine that it's it's really critical because when— and I want to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners exactly what the Caterpillar Foundation does, but it does focus on three key areas— um, and in order for anyone to to find success and live their best life, if if they're not living in a stable environment, then none of the things that um, the foundation's focusing on will take place. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, t- tell the listeners exactly what your responsibilities are as the president of the Caterpillar Foundation and what those three key areas are that you focus on. Mm-hmm. So, Caterpillar Foundation, um, 
similar to any other um, corporate corporation is the 501c3 arm, the nonprofit arm of the company. Um, so, and I'm really privileged to be um, leading the uh, corporation's foundation in really looking at uh, global issues as, as a global company with, with, with that kind of footprint. You know, we're always looking to understand how we can uh, positively impact communities where we live, work, and play um, and ensure that we're being a good corporate citizen. And it also gives us an opportunity to really, um, you know, have a have a voice and really be able to contribute to some of the global issues, whether that's in education, um, in looking at sustainable infrastructure, and in looking at... Um, uh, environment issues um, and how do we really contribute to build what we're calling resilient communities. So in, in my day job, it, it's really about um, understanding what those problems are that we're trying to solve and how do we effectively contribute to that, whether that's in the form of uh, funding or technology or even the brain power that we can leverage from the hundreds, uh, thousands of employees that we have. So uh, you know, we focus around workforce readiness, looking at both the manufacturing skills gap that we're seeing, but also the future of work. You know, how do you upskill people? How do you solve some of the employment issues that we're seeing? Um, and on the flip side, you know, how do you really create a community that is strong? I mean, you're seeing disasters happen on a almost monthly basis now. Um, even just coming into 2020. So how do you really build up natural infrastructure that can be more resilient um, and also provide basic access to um, infrastructure solutions, whether that's water or power solutions? And our employees, um, our dealers, our customers, they're all part of that equation. So it's not just, you know, we do it alone, but mm. um, together, how do we make communities more stronger? So it's a very broad area of, you know, um, not topics, but, you know, you're, you're covering a lot of areas that are focused on people and improving their mm-hmm. lives. And you mentioned at the beginning of the show, you were in corporate America and you worked at GE. Tell me how this opportunity came to you to be the president of this foundation. Yeah, so my um, it, it, yeah, my career at GE started more on the technology side, um, for which I'm, I was trained. Um, so I really didn't think about, um, I obviously always had an eye towards um, community and understanding how do you solve some of these societal challenges. And I think it's probably um, as a result of my, of growing up in, you know, between India and rural Kentucky, you're constantly sort of um, facing some of these challenges or you see it on a daily basis. And, um, and it's always been part of me to say, how do you solve some of these problems? But I did not go into corporate America thinking this is where I would perhaps land. Um, but throughout my career um, and, and having gone from, um, you know, businesses to businesses, whether that's within GE, I've always um, put a foot on um, helping sort of the community that we're in, whether it's looking at education programs, um, providing soft skills to students and creating a program there, or GE gave me an opportunity to go to start, start a STEM-based program um, called Igniting Minds, which was sort of my baby when, when we were at GE. And um, 
that really kind of gave me an opportunity to say there's really something that private sector can do, that industry can do in this space, sort of the thinking that we bring to the business perspective that we can really impact in the social space. So that was sort of my transition um, at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, so it gave me an opportunity to really work with GE Foundation initially, uh, both in the U.S. and global healthcare side and okay. solving some of the problems that was the time when ACA came to be. Um, so that was sort of my initial engagement in corporate social philanthropy. And um, my goal really is to be able to bring that thinking of business um, business thinking and, and the supply chain and that manufacturing thinking into the social space to say, could we apply some of that in that particular space? And then Caterpillar gave me the opportunity to um, lead their foundation um, to the next phase. And, um, and I'm thoroughly enjoying my opportunity here uh, with, with, with the big yellow iron. Great. Right. We're going to take our last break and continue our conversation. Stay with us for our Tech Watch with Mary Manzo. We'll be right back. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. What do you get when art, science, and technology intersect? I believe you get an explosion of new creative ways to view the world, and that is exactly what the founders of Art Tech House have done. Founded in 2015 by arts advocates Sandro and Tati, they believe that it's a place where one can always get inspired, educated, and empowered by exploring the latest and the best worlds of art, science, and tech. They showcase works by groundbreaking artists who work with technology and new forms of creative expression. Their mission is to inspire, educate, and empower the creation of new experimental and exploratory art forms. Their goal is to connect audiences of all ages to the arts and stimulate interest in the limitless possibilities of technology, science, and creativity. They believe that art should be for everyone and strive to create a welcoming, inclusive environment designed to appeal to all ages, helping visitors discover and appreciate new art forms. Technology has undoubtedly affected art across various mediums and has expanded the horizon of creativity. More than anything, it's changed the way artists are operating through new techniques. In addition to the paintbrush and charcoal are things like video software and digital colors. Along with these new techniques are many controversies because they don't follow the traditions of the discipline of art. But art has changed over the course of the centuries based on new techniques and materials available to the artist and takes art to a whole new level. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised and intrigued by these new art forms. At Art Tech House, these new and incredible forms of art are cleverly displayed. If you're in New York City, Washington, D.C., or Miami area, I encourage you to visit Art Tech House. For more information, email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Now 
I'm speaking with Asha Varghese this evening, president of the Caterpillar Foundation. And, um, you know, a lot of what we talk about when we um, discuss the kind of work that you do is diversity and its importance. And I, I wanted to ask you, why do you think it's important to work with a diverse network of leaders in order to have impact and, and make change? Mm-hmm. I, I think when, um, you know, the world that we live in today, it is very global in nature. And you're, you're working in environments where, you know, culture plays a very significant role um, in how we do business. So I think it's very important for us to have a diverse group of perspectives as as you design solutions, as you um, make decisions, and having that perspective is very important. And that's why um, you know diversity and inclusion becomes such a significant part of corporations, where it is the power of everyone uh, versus the power of one. So um, to me, you know, having that cultural background, just from my own personal perspective. Um, definitely brings a different um, eye towards building solutions. And I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of the building ide- having ideas and solutions from unlike minds. Um, so to me, it's, it's such a crucial part of how we do business, um, whether that's, you know, in the industry side or whether that's solving some of the global challenges. Mm. You know, a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of what... Um moves things forward ends up being policy that is made or changed. I wonder, would you ever consider going into politics? There, um, I would never say, never say no, right? So um, there's definitely an interest and passion for me to want to make change happen, to be able to help people. I think I've sort of identified that as my as my purpose in being able to create those stable environments for people. So one of the one of the reasons that um, I I was uh, fortunate enough to be part of the Presidential Leadership Scholar Program, which gives you that perspective um, from for you know past U.S. presidents on uh, and how they made decisions and, and their core values and, and their entire administration. It's, it's such a uh, a, a privileged program to be part of. I, I truly feel honored to be part of that program that really gave me that perspective mm-hmm. um, to, to perhaps, you know, take on bigger challenges, whether that leads me into the world of, uh, world of politics or policy um, to be determined. But at the same time, <laughs> it's definitely given me the, um, the confidence to know that, you know, there are, um, there are those opportunities, and, and that's one way you can make change happen in this world. You know, when we think about the environment around politics today, it's, you know, you you the perspective is you're really entering the fray. So, you know, it's, it's a scary it's a scary thing to think about. Um, tell me, you also mentioned earlier in the interview about your uh, black belt certification. Mm-hmm. Why why did you decide to do that? Uh, to me, uh, I, I think it's definitely something that um, I I enjoyed going through the process of uh, taking data. And in this world where, uh, you know, data is something that you absolutely cannot live with, everything is driven by data and AI, 
um, to me, it was important to kind of understand how do you take something so complex and translate that into something that's more digestible and uh, can be said in the form of a story. So um, being a black belt, to me, I think a lot of it's definitely from my engineering of, you know, how do you make things more efficient? How do you remove waste from a process and, and, and make it more smooth? Uh, so I think that ethos definitely um, gave me sort of the interest to want to be part of uh, the Six Sigma community, but it was more of understanding how can data really help us um, solve solve problems was, was definitely the angle that I was going after um, as being a black belt. But I will say once you're a black belt, I, it definitely translates to everything in your life, like loading your dishwasher to how do you, how do you um, put the list together for grocery shopping. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a little bit scary, but um, <laughs> very satisfying for me. <laughs> Asha, do you ever have opportunities to uh, mentor young girls or or speak to groups of younger women? And if so, what is I, what is your message to them to help with their own self esteem? Absolutely, yeah. So I do have um, one of the things I will say. I've definitely um, been blessed with are a group of uh, mentors. Um, and even folks that I would call probably my sponsors, right, that goes beyond mentors that would truly stand up and vouch for me, um, and both men and women um, that have definitely helped me along the way in my career. So um, to me, you know, if you have a seat at the table, then you ought to be pulling someone else, another seat to the table is the mantra that I uh, believe in. So I, I do have um, mentees that... Uh, in, in various stages of life and folks that are also uh, from, you know, different backgrounds and even global uh, folks and have had the um, ability to travel and kind of meet people that way. Um, you know, some things that I have learned in life that I would say is, you know, don't let your, um, your, limit, your environment or your circumstances limit you from being able to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. what what you really want to go after. And uh, it's hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it to say, oh, if you um, do X, Y, Z, you're going you're gonna to make it. it, it it's, it's hard, but it's, it's possible. So um, having that faith and hope to say, you know, you can, you can, you can change certain things and, um, and don't be afraid to ask for help. And I think that's something that I learned uh, later in life, uh, you know, knowing our limitations, but, you know, stopping to kind of ask, ask for help. The third thing that I'm learning very late in life is self, self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times, especially as women and when you, you know, you know when your responsibilities get bigger, um, you know, you have so many priorities, whether that's family, your career, your children, um, but sometimes we tend to forget about ourselves and to take care of ourselves. And um, my advice to um, to all the young leaders out there is, you know, take that moment to one, celebrate yourself and to also take care of yourself. Asha, that's a great way to end the show. I, I thank you so much for joining me this evening and look forward to staying in touch and, and watching your success continue. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you to our sponsors and our watch team for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title every week here on Women to Watch. Have a great week, everyone. 
Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.